Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We're continuing our sermon series from the Luke and Gospel. We're marching our way to Easter Sunday, uh, where we'll uh, conclude and end up our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. And I hope you've made every one of these sermons. And if you have had to miss a sermon, it's, they all kind of work together as a whole. You can go to firstamarillo.org and you can put it on your iPod or you can watch it or print it off and read it. We'd like for you to keep up with each of these 13 sermons on, on Luke's Gospel. And there is no sermon out of the Gospel of Luke more important than today's sermon. If you write in your Bible, if you mark in your Bible, you can just put a, a star right there by Luke 4, 14 as being, I believe, the very center of the Gospel of Luke. There's something that remarkable takes place today. Everything depends on this passage. Everything depends on this preacher, Jesus. Everything depends on this sermon found in Luke 4, 14. As we arrived at our text today, Jesus is in his own hometown, Nazareth, where he spent his childhood years growing up as a son of Mary and Joseph. As always in our text today, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. The attendant of the synagogue hands the scroll over to the rabbi, Rabbi Jesus, and Jesus takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he works it down to Isaiah 61. And Jesus in the synagogue on that day in Nazareth reads these life-changing, cosmic-changing words. Look at Luke 4:18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Rabbi Jesus rolls the scroll shut, hands it back to the synagogue attendant, and as was the custom for teachers in his day, he sits down and he begins to teach. Look at 420, Luke builds a suspense to a climax when he says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He read Isaiah 61. What is this rabbi about to say? This one who's been doing miracles in nearby Capernaum. What will he say about this text on this day in the synagogue on the Sabbath? What Jesus says can never be taken back. These are the words today that change everything for everybody for all times. Look what he says in 421. Today. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Those words are the power words of the Gospel of Luke. Once spoken, they cannot be gathered back. What Isaiah talked about, the coming of the Messiah, 
The poor receiving the gospel, the blind receiving sight, today, today, it's about to happen in your midst. Why is this sermon in this synagogue such a big deal? Why has everything changed forever now that this rabbi has made it clear that today is the day and he alone is the one? What exactly was Jesus saying? And how were they hearing it? And why the violent response to this rabbi? Let us begin unpacking perhaps the most important passage in the entirety of Luke's gospel. The passage that sets the paradigm for all the rest of this gospel. For you see, rejection in Nazareth will eventually lead to rejection in Jerusalem. And yet it will still be true. Today is the day of fulfillment. Well, the first outline, 414, back to the beginning, I outlined this passage in the power of the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit. Look how 4.14 begins. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Once again, Luke reminds us that everything about Jesus involves the Spirit of God. All the way back in 135, he told us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, verse 22, at the baptism, we learn that Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday in 4.1, for that wilderness testing and temptation, we learned that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. And now he is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Having previously faced conflict with Satan himself, now Jesus faces conflict with his own neighbors in Nazareth. In our previous passage, Luke 4, 1 through 13, Jesus has clearly aligned his desires with the desires of God. Standing firm in the face of every temptation that Satan could muster to get Jesus to skip the cross and take a shortcut to glory. The obedience itself was proof positive that Jesus was ready to begin his public ministry. Verse 15, I outline in, in their synagogues, in their synagogues. Look at uh, 15. And he began teaching in their synagogues. So in the power of the Spirit, and the next, in their synagogues. Now, much like churches today, synagogues were more about the people than the place. In fact, they started out just as special rooms in a private home, and, and then as the Jewish community grew, they were able, able to construct buildings like we do for the purpose of prayer and reading scripture and teaching. And so they started out in private homes, and, and then by the time of Jesus' day, those synagogues had become kind of community centers. It was like a church, you know, our, people think we're busy on Sunday. We have more people come through our church during the week than we do on a Sunday. If you add it up Monday through Saturday, there's so many things going on. It's active. It's, it's a place of education and fellowship and teaching all week long, where the synagogue was just like, like that, too. Now, Luke lets us know that Jesus has been teaching in the Galilean synagogues. And as we witness the ministry of Jesus through reading the New Testament, we realize that Jesus actually did 
three things in his ministry. Now, this is a good summation of everything that Jesus did in all the Gospels. He did three things. He taught. Repent for the kingdom of God has arrived. He, he taught. The second thing that you find Jesus doing, if you outlined all the activity and words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, well, the second thing he did is we, he healed the sick. The blind could see, the lame could leap, he healed the sick. And the third thing he did, though we don't talk about it as much, I'm not sure why, but he did it every bit as much as he healed and taught, he cast out demons. So Jesus taught, he healed, and he cast out demons. And as we go through the gospel of Luke, we will encounter all these aspects of Luke's ministry. In fact, we sort of encounter them today in the passage from the prophet Isaiah. Well, so far, he's not given us a glimpse of Jesus' teaching. But notice what happens in verse 15. He was praised by all. He was teaching in the Galilean synagogues, and he was praised by all. The root of that word praise is the word glory. You, you might translate, he was glorified by all. Now, as we've gone through the gospel of Luke, we know about glory and God's glory, don't we? You remember in Luke 2, 9, the shepherds, the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before the shepherds and the glory of the Lord, the doxa of the Lord shone round about them and they were terribly afraid. So it's that same word, glory here. Or all of a sudden that one angel of proclamation had a whole heavenly host which said, glory to God, doxa, glory to God and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Or the shepherds went back after they found, they found Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, just like the angels had said. It says at the, air, at the end of Luke 2, about verse 20, that they went out glorifying God for all the things they had seen and heard. Or, or think again, chapter 2 continues in the person Simeon. Simeon is the old man who's in the temple, and God has told him that he will not die until he beholds God's salvation. And here comes for the purification, for the, here comes Joseph and Mary with baby Jesus, dedication and purification. And Simeon takes baby Jesus in his arms and he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation of the Gentiles, and the glory, the doxa of your people Israel. So Luke likes that word glory. So Jesus teaches in the Galilean synagogues and they all glorify him. God has been glorified by the angels and now Jesus is glorified like God. And maybe the biggest doxa, the biggest glory of all in Luke's gospel is when the centurion stands at the crucifixion at the foot of the cross and he says, he began to glorify God during the crucifixion for he saw Jesus as the innocent son of God. Glory, they all praised, they glorified a powerful word with much resonance in Luke. Verse 16 is outlined this way on the Sabbath. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Nazareth is mentioned as the hometown of Mary and Joseph. Now, Nazareth is small. 
I mean small. I'm talking 400 people small. That's about the size it was. And archaeologists, as they excavate Nazareth, not only was it small, it was poor. There are no public buildings that have been ever excavated in Nazareth. There's no fine china, just rough, everyday used clay pottery. Uh, there's nothing great about Nazareth. It's a little nothing town, to be sure. In fact, it was the the end of many jokes. No paved streets even in Nazareth. So Jesus is now in this poor little village of about 400 people, but it's his own neighborhood, his own hometown, and he begins to read. It was Jesus' custom, I like that, on God's day to be in God's house with God's people and the lesson taught in this synagogue on this day is representative of the many messages that Jesus would preach. Well, look at 417. In Isaiah, we're doing prepositional phrases today. 417 is in Isaiah. Look, look what it says. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written. As presented by Luke, Jesus chooses the specific passage in Isaiah. Now, can you imagine, now you understand and you know that the chapter divisions and the versification is secondary, right? You know, when, when, when Luke was writing, he didn't put chapter 2, verse 1, that went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. He just wrote, right? So in Jesus' day, there are no chapters designations and no versifications. Could you imagine me just handing you a copy of Isaiah and, and saying, Turn to that passage in Isaiah. Wait, what passage? There is no Isaiah 61. There's just a long, long scroll of Isaiah. Jesus knows God's word so well. He is able to roll that scroll. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. There it is. He knew Isaiah that well. And in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, 58, and back to 61, he reads the text of the passage. Look at 418. The prepositional phrase is, upon me, upon me. The Spirit of the Lord, this is from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is as much compelled by the Spirit as he is indwelt by the Spirit. In Isaiah 42 we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Why is he there? Look at, look at verse 18. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He is to bring good news to the poor. The poor in this passage represent so much more than those who didn't have financial funds. It is those who are excluded from the Jewish community. Those who in the competitive race for resources have lost out. They are those who have no power, they have no place, they have no position in Nazareth. And therefore their only resource is to look to God and to cry out for help. In Luke 6, Jesus begins the Beatitudes with, Blessed are the poor, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. 
He rolls to that Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Some of Jesus' followers, the disciples, had left everything behind to follow him. Many of his followers were absolutely the poorest among them. How about you today? Are you marginalized? Someone watching by way of television, are you pushed out by this culture and this place? Are you pushed to the margins of life so that you've come to that point in desperation where you have nowhere else to turn to but God? And maybe today is your day to hear the good news. Good news to those that everybody else forgets. Jesus is saying that he refuses to recognize the boundaries that everybody else draws between powerful and Well, no power. Between the haves and the have-nots. While the very ones who seem to have been pushed beyond the reach of God's grace, the good news, the message of Jesus is, the gospel is for you. Jesus is saying, and this first paradigm of a message as he preaches That in Jesus, with Jesus, now that the Messiah is here, the nobodies of this world have all of a sudden become somebodies. Because he himself is a son of a poor Jewish carpenter with a barn and a cradle for a bed. Not only do the poor have the gospel preached to them, but notice how it continues. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus ran around unlocking the jails. Release means to be set free. It's one of those two things Jesus did. If they were possessed by demonic powers, he released them. He set them free. He has been sent for the release from the power of sin and Satan and death. When Jesus commands the demons to depart, we will see in Luke, he is setting the victims free from Satan's stronghold. The chains of iniquity incarcerate us all as sinners, and Jesus, through bringing God's grace and forgiveness, he is sent to release us from the captivity of sin. Well, there's a third group. Notice And recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. Now, in Palestine, blindness, unfortunately, was very common. And and yet in the gospel, blindness can mean one or two things. And which one of those two things does Jesus mean? Yes and yes. Those who were physically blind in the gospel, we know that he opens their eyes and all of a sudden they are blind and their testimony is, I once was blind, John 9, but now I see. And yet blindness in the gospels can also mean the inability of those who are specifically religious to see the real identity of Jesus as Messiah. So blindness can mean an inability to recognize and proclaim to see Jesus as Messiah. And so notice what he says. I'm going to give recovery of sight to those who are blind. Do you remember 
On the road to Emmaus, that story that's only in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, Jesus is walking away from Jerusalem with two followers, and they, they know about the crucifixion of Jesus, and there's all the turmoil in Jerusalem over his crucifixion, and they're walking back home, and they do not know that it is the resurrected Jesus in their midst, and he talks to them about the prophet Isaiah, and he explains to them, unfolds to them all the scriptures about the Messiah. And then it says in Luke 24, all of a sudden their eyes were open and they could see. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're watching by way of television. Maybe your testimony would be like that of those on the road to Emmaus. He opened their eyes that they might could recognize him. Maybe today is your day to recognize Jesus as the only son of God, the only way of salvation, the one who died on the cross and gloriously rose again. He was sent to give sight to those who were blind. How about you? How about me? Do we need to recover our sight of who Jesus is? Notice finally he says, and to set free those who are downtrodden. Actually in the Greek text, it's send and release again. It's a repetition. He had been sent above to proclaim release to the captives. Well, in this verse, in the Greek text, he is sent to release those who are oppressed to be released, to be set free. Twice now, two groups, he set free those who are oppressed. Verses 19 through 20, I, I call to proclaim, to proclaim. Look at how 19 begins. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. There it is. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. I got the strangest call about 20 years ago from the mortgage company. I gazed at the caller ID and I saw it was a mortgage company. I thought, uh-oh, maybe it got lost in the mail. I picked up the phone, a bit intrigued, and said, hello. Is Mr. Howard Batson home? The lady asked. Well, a lot of times if it's a sales call, they call me Bateson. I don't know why. It's Batson, but they put an E in there, and it's not a familiar name in this area of the country. And so it uh, didn't say Bateson, said, is Mr. Howard Batson there? So I knew that they might be on to something, and they weren't an irritating salesperson. And, I, and, and then she said, Mr. Batson, are you sitting down? Uh-oh, should I be sitting down? Mr. Batson, if you'll hang on the line, the president of the mortgage company would like to speak to you for a moment. I was going through my head, what have we done? When do we need to pack up and get out of here? They're calling in the loan. Mr. Batson, our records show that you have three, we had a 30-year mortgage. I'm ashamed to say we owed 302 more payments on the house. The balance, the president said, was $127,000, and everything the bank president saying was true. I'm wondering what is the catch. And Mr. Batson, the board of directors has met, and as is our custom, every 50 years, we select a few customers and just call it paid in full. You're done. 
Thought, man, is this a joke? What is the catch? I don't understand. What are you talking about? Well, it's long been our custom. Every 50 years at random, we select certain accounts. And we just are pleased to tell you, Mr. Basson, that yours has been randomly selected as one of the accounts. Congratulations. You are released from your debt. You are paid in full. I said, could you send me written notification of this conversation? (laughs) Sir, she said, it's in the mail. We put it in the mail today. Well, just as quickly as she had hung up, I guess she went through calling all the other lucky customers and liberating them. And, well, now that I think about it, that never happened. I think that was a, uh, that was a daydream that I might have had one day. But could you imagine that feeling? What if that happened to you? You are, we are all burdened by our debt. And what if the mortgage company called and just said, hey, <laughs> it's the 50th year. And every 50th year, we decide somebody is released from their debt. Could you fathom the freedom of that kind of phone call? Well, it doesn't happen in Amarillo, Texas. But it was supposed to happen in ancient Israel. According to Leviticus 25, 6 through 10, you know, think about it. You got the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Then you have the Sabbath year, the seventh year. And then when you have seven Sabbath years, 49, the year after that is the big year. It is called the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, there was a blowing of the ram's horn. It was a start over day for those who were poor. On the 50th year, when you heard the blowing of the ram's horn, then all your debt was, well, it was, you, you got your land back, the debts were paid off, it was a do-over, a mulligan, a start-over, a begin-again day of the poor. And Jesus said, I have been sent to proclaim the year of Jubilee. You know, oddly enough, it wasn't real in Amarillo, but it wasn't real in ancient Israel either. There is no historical evidence that ancient Israel ever did what she was supposed to do and observe the year of Jubilee and cancel out everybody's debts. There is no historical proof. There is no Old Testament scholar who will tell you that that ever, ever happened. And so they had longed. It was in the law. It was supposed to happen. And Jesus says, today, this is finally at last. This is the day of Jubilee. I am blowing the ram's horn. The Messiah is here. Well, 421 is in your hearing. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That someday of the Savior is now today. There is no better news in the cosmos than that. That someday of the Savior is now today. You remember that Christmas message, the announcement of the angel, for unto you is born when? Today. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord Today, today, he rolled up the scroll and everybody was waiting. He had read the prophet Isaiah. All eyes were fixed upon him. What will Messiah, what will he say? And Jesus says, today is that day. 
There have never been more powerful words uttered by any preacher, teacher, anywhere, anytime. Today is a day of jubilee. I am the Messiah. The blind will see. The poor will hear good news. Those who are captive to Satan will be set free. It is the favorable year of the Lord. They're taken back, verse 22. Isn't this Joseph's boy? 22, I'd, I'd say from his lips, from his lips. Listen, what are these words he's saying that are falling from his lips? Isn't that Joseph's boy? How can he say he's the Messiah? 23 and 24 are outlined with in your hometown. Jesus is no hometown hero. In fact, he says in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. And then he tells them, here's the rub. He tells them about the prophet Elijah and Elisha. And he says, in Elijah's day, there were a lot of widows. There was famine for a long time, for years. And yet there was only one widow that the Jewish prophet Elijah went to, and it was the widow of Zarephath. It wasn't an Israelite widow. And then he tells them about Elijah. There were a lot of lepers in Elisha's day, but there was only one leper healed by the prophet Elijah, and that was Naaman the Syrian. In verse 28, they are outraged. They know what it means. Jesus is saying three things. Today is a day, and I am the Messiah, but I am the Messiah of everybody, not just the Jews. Like Elijah, Elijah, I go with good news to all. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, with rage. With rage. And all of the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And then 29 and 30 is off the cliff. Off the cliff. They, have you ever realized this passage? They were going to kill Jesus right then. He had claimed to be the Messiah, which that's blasphemy. If he's not the Messiah, he's worthy of death. You don't say you're the Messiah, you better be the Messiah. They take him to the edge of the cliff upon which the little town resided, and they were going to cast him off. But notice, he passed through their midst. That's a miracle. God saved him because his time had not yet come. He passed through their midst. But they were so angry that he said he was the Messiah, that today was a day and the Messiah was there for all people. There's no sermon ever preached like this sermon. You may hear thousands of sermons, but there is no sermon like this sermon from Rabbi Jesus because he alone blows the ram's horn of Jubilee. Maybe you're here this morning and you are that nobody who needs to be a somebody and maybe that Savior can make you a somebody today. Maybe you're here today and you do have blindness or maybe physically you can see, but you have not yet acknowledged Jesus for who he is, the unique son of God. And maybe today is your day, whether you're watching by television or here in this great sanctuary, that today is the day 
you'll join the man in John 9 and say, I once was blind, but now I see. Maybe you're held captive to something. Maybe there are demons nipping at your heels, just like those demons of old. Maybe this is your day that Jesus has been sent to release you. Maybe you're oppressed. He has been sent to set you free. And maybe you have a great debt of sin, and you need to hear that the blowing of the ram's horn, that this is the year of Jubilee, that in Christ Jesus, you are absolutely and totally free. You hear thousands of sermons in your life, but you'll never hear a sermon like this. The good news is preached. The blind can see. Those in captivity are running in the streets free. It is the day, the year of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh God, we come to you today and we proclaim jubilee. And every Sunday since has been just like this Sabbath. That today is the day. Those who are blind can now see. Those who are poor. Those who are marginalized. The nobodies can be somebodies. And those of us who have the demons nipping at our heels. We can't outrun them. But we have a Savior who can overpower them. God, I pray this is that day for somebody. Maybe someone who needs to come and says, I want to see Jesus as Savior. I want to begin that journey today. Maybe there are others who would say, I want today to be my day with this church family. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.